This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. What a year. 2017 was a massive year of growth for Fresh Ed. We put out 44 shows that received over 25,000 listens. We covered a range of topics, including, but certainly not limited to, educational privatization, student unions, intercultural competencies, the militarization of childhood in Japan, and of course, PISA. We spoke to professors, students, politicians, and development practitioners from around the world. All of this is huge for a show that is basically a hobby for a group of education enthusiasts. There are going to be some changes in the works for next year, but I'll announce those details once everything is finalized. For now, let's take stock of the year. What were the big ideas in educational research in 2017? What was missing? And where are we going in 2018? For the final show of the year, I've invited Susan Robertson and Roger Dale back on to reflect on the year in research and point to future directions. They are co-editors of the journal Globalization, Societies, and Education, which, like Fresh Ed, has a relatively broad remit. In our conversation, we look back at the diverse range of topics covered in educational research this year. We also ponder why certain topics, such as austerity and meritocracy, remain unexamined and why many scholars don't fully engage in theory. Susan Robertson is a professor of sociology of education at the University of Cambridge, and Roger Dale is a professor of education at the University of Bristol. Susan Robertson and Roger Dale, welcome back to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much, Will, for having us. Uh, lovely to uh, see you at the, or listen to you at the end of two, 2017 and as we face into 2018. And thanks very much for the work of Fresh Ed over the year. It's been a fantastic output. Really, it's been a terrific contribution. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show to talk about 2017 and what has happened over this pretty tumultuous and crazy year. Um, So just as we did last year, I want to just kind of reflect on the year. What, What was... You know, what were some of the big events? What were some of the big pieces of research um, that you found enjoyable? What wasn't being said? Things like this. So I guess to start, really, you know, how would you describe this, the state of the field of comparative education or globalization and education, um, you know, for, for this year specifically? Well, Will, I think any field, to some extent, uh, is positioned in historical time, as it were, and 2017 has been quite a tumultuous year, really, um, on political fronts. Um, And maybe that's also where, to some extent, journals, if there's a lag, you know, what are we publishing in 2017? To some extent, uh, some of that work, not all of it, but some of that work reflects um, contributions, uh, research that might have been done in 2015, you know, perhaps even indeed landed in our uh, journal in the production flow in 2016, and yet 2017 they're kind of crawling through the system. But some of those are actually not talking about what's really going on in a really important way. Um, perhaps 
the retraction back into national borders, which raises some interesting theoretical questions about how are we thinking about the state and territory. Um, so that would be my reflection. Perhaps, Roger, you might have one as well. Yeah, I, I um, looking back, I'm, I'm quite surprised uh, to find uh, the, the level of continuity so that articles published in the last two years could have been published four years ago and, and vice versa. Um, I don't see much reflection of, for instance, of the impact of austerity. I don't think we've, we've seen the word austerity in the journal practically. And I think part of this is that while the world has changed, the conditions of knowledge production within academia haven't changed that much. And so it is, we're still based, I think the, the journal is still to a considerable degree, based around um, uh, a, a knowledge production regime that is based on producing PhDs. And so we get a lot of case studies, um, which is perfect for PhDs, but we get fewer reflective pieces. Uh, and, and I think that, that that's quite a strong trend, and it, it and it, uh, it's held out, as it were, over uh, the same uh, over over the period when lots of things have been happening in the world. For instance, an another area I think we've not got very much on is, for instance, is uh, the new philanthropy. I mean that that's it becomes a huge deal in terms of globalization and education. But I don't think we've had many, if any, pieces on it. So, I mean, necessarily we, we're behind uh, in terms of time because of throughput. But, I mean, over four or five years, this similar trend. So is this, I mean, it's an interesting, I mean, dilemma, I guess we could say. I mean, is this a problem with the, the way in which journals operate, how long it takes to go through the peer review process, and, you know, I mean, maybe there's other kind of structural issues that are, are making researchers maybe not addressing the most timely issues that we see, such as austerity or new philanthropy, or maybe even this issue of, um, you know, the retreating into the national borders, as, as Susan said. I mean, so is this, is this an issue of the journal? Like, is the journal um, that you co-edit kind of implicated in this process? Well, quite likely, but I think, I'd say that there's also another issue. So uh, some of the uh, research that I think is both uh, pressing and important includes the rise and the rise of the uh, for-profit sector and uh, again also think of the way in which they're deeply involved in um, the emergence negotiation of the sustainable development goals. But getting close to some of these uh, corporations um, and perhaps one of the pieces that did come through our journal, uh, Curtis Reap, uh, who was studying as part of his doctoral work, Bridge International Academy. Now, he found himself in a really challenging situation in Uganda, okay? um, and with uh, accusations. Uh, and I don't want to go into the detail, though the paper is in our journal, but he was uh, very anxious about uh, what, the, what Bridge might do even to that published piece of work. Um, he was uh, harassed um, in the city itself um, 
in um, uh, Kampala. Um, they, they, the police with their lawyers picked him up and accused him of being on territory that he hadn't declared himself he was impersonating and so on. All of those things were shown to be false. Now, I don't want to go into the detail of that case, but more and more what I see in the university is uh, a kind of a, a difficulty in working on what I think are really some of the really pressing issues to do with education, the encroachment in of uh, large corporations into the sector, and, and, and a kind of a high level of risk averseness by universities, for example, signing off field work into more complicated spaces. Now, there is a duty of care that the university has both toward its students and its staff, but at the same time, you know, how um, a recent uh, student in um, Cambridge working on Syria, or you know, what are the implications of working in um, parts of, let's say, sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Latin America, where the situation is 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 difficult. Um, so I, I think there's several things that are occurring here that uh, you know mean that we're not always following. The, the the detail of these kind of much more pressing and complicated issues. Now, it's not all like that, but there is a, a growing amount of work uh, to do with, you know, globalisation, education, who gets what, um, so the implications for society, what this journal is fundamentally concerned with, that uh, kind of now is running hard up against power and the ways in which power can block, you know, um, and, and you can't access much much of that through freedom of information because uh, commercial sensitivities and so on get invoked. Yeah, and, and I think a, a really interesting kind of uh, contrast with that that confirms it uh, would be the case of uh, OECD and PISA in particular. I mean, um, Bob Lingard and Sam Seller and the group have had fantastic access there but, uh, as they point out, this is part of the PISA uh, strategy itself. Bob will, will insist that what distinguishes PISA from, from other international things is they want the publicity. It is highly public, and that's part of the whole strategy. And so they have very good access to PISA, and they deliver very good papers on this, but that's, that is... <clears throat> You know that we don't get the same kind of access, for instance, to the to the um, uh, philanthropists, and we don't get the same kind of access, probably, to uh, the World Bank and others uh, who are funding. Um, and I think that's a big difference. So you know, why would PISA want the publicity, right? I mean, and does that publicity, that that desire for it, and that granting of access to researchers, does that limit researchers in some ways? Um, I, I don't think... Well, we don't know what's withheld, clearly. That's, that's one thing. But uh, I would think that PISA and the, and the internal workings of PISA have been subject to more sociological probing and analysis than anything else. And, and we know a lot about it and how it works. Um, but that is the point, because I think that the PISA people want it to be known like this. It is really important to them uh, that it maintains the high profile. 
And then, and, and then, and then the piece of brand spreads sideways into other areas too. Can, can I come in here, Will? Because I think uh, it's, I can see in this that example, and I'll use a different one. Um, there's a strong temptation amongst researchers to then, you know, be totally preoccupied by PISA, and yet the OECD has. Uh, other uh, large-scale uh, instruments that it's mm. developing, you know, toward adults, uh, teaching young children, um, teachers, the Teaching and Learning International Survey called TALIS. Um, so one of the issues, I think, uh, is that we, by, by putting PISA right in the middle as the OECD would want, only because a lot of countries also signed up, we also... Uh, don't, I think, put sufficient attention onto, as researchers, the other instruments that are, are being developed. Perhaps they're a little bit problematic and they're, the OECD is on its way to trying to fine-tune those instruments. But I think we need more work on these others. Um, so that's one example. The second example, I think, is you know, uh, there's been a huge amount of interest amongst um, researchers looking at Pearson uh, education. And yet there are uh, many other um, large corporations involved and I think we need to widen the scope. You know, so it's at one level that's an important kind of advocacy issue, you know, looking at the, the largest kind of corporation, although it's lost some of its uh, education portfolio and some of its uh, power, I think, because of uh, some issues that have emerged in the United States around, you know, marketing when... Uh, or using education, their foundations for marketing purposes when they shouldn't. But I think we need to kind of widen the scope and look at uh, you know, a whole raft of other uh, actors. Uh, perhaps it was profiled in um, one of the issues this year, uh, Yanya Komlinovic, and she's been looking at um, quite interesting um, organisations like LinkedIn, you know, these new platforms that are emerging. Uh, there's some interesting work, I think, to be done around the rise of platform capitalism, but uh, more generally, if we want to name it that, but quite simply, what that means is more and more of, you know, education is, is sitting on infrastructures, you know, so providers, uh, much of the venture capital money that came out of um, the housing sector in 2008 went directly into education, but where did it go? It actually went into uh, the development of platforms on which, you know, education systems, research management systems, uh, LinkedIn or ResearchGate, these are platforms that are very nicely accumulating and accumulating uh, data that gets packaged and repackaged mm. in different ways and sold back to the sector. Um, so I think there's, but there, there's a danger then of just bringing one big, you know, spectacular actor into the frame, and we kind of might say, well, on the advocacy front, you know, we've had some wins if you know some of the research is used for that purpose, but I, I think it doesn't show the scale and the scope of the unraveling of education to private interests. Hmm. I mean, I, you know, reflecting on the show over the last year. And even in the beginning of, of the, the year previously, I mean, PISA and privatization have been consistently 
topics of interest by the researchers that I've I've brought on. Um, so would you? So Roger, would you call this? Would you call PISA and even you know thinking of of privatization by looking as Susan said of the big actor of Pearson, for instance? Um, would this be part of the level of continuity that you are talking about? I, th- I think it, it, it is continuity, but I, I, I think as, as we've both been saying, there, what, what we would have thought of maybe 10 years ago, may, maybe less, was real problems of access to these institutions. Um, we don't... It's all turned around, they welcome now. They, they, they welcome the publicity. Uh, and um, they don't mind, I suppose, to a degree, the critique, because uh, they can they can almost draw some some solace from the fact that academics critique them to say we must be doing something right. Almost, I think that's going too far. Um, so I, I I do think it, it's changed, and um, but but that. This is just an, another instance of the, of the, of the wider issue of um, the journal having to follow what's, what is available, in a sense, uh, in, in terms of empirical happenings, what, what is available. Um, and I think that we, what we would prefer to see in terms of a balance in the journal is less kind of empirical studies, good though they are, and more fundamental theoretical studies to say what's happening. Because things, as I've said, it doesn't seem to me that we've, ref- we've reflected as fully as we might have the changes in the world. So this reflection, these reflection pieces that you're talking about, this is where you think more theory could be brought in. Yeah, I think so. The, so, I mean, you could draw empirical studies together. So we've got a lot of material now on, um, as Roger says, uh, empirically based work, you know, branch campuses, let's say American students in Thailand, uh, you know, some students that go from the US into the Arab world and so on. So we can see these kinds of studies. But if we took all of those together and we said, what are these cases of? Um, And then it seems to me you can begin to ask some interesting kinds of questions here um, about trying to think about theorising space, movement, mobility, thinking about time, how time gets worked or reworked. I think there's work to be done on, you know, thinking about the state. So how do we want to think about transformations of the state in 2017, looking back in terms of state theory? What does the rise or the retraction now to some extent of regions uh, do to how we begin to think about um, the, the state? I mean, I'm also increasingly taken with, and we see very little work coming through. I mean, Roger's right, I agree this being very little work on austerity, but, you know, the rise and the rise, so global inequalities and what does that look like? And it's not just a question of looking at who gets access to education, but uh, at kind of two ends of that spectrum, what does, what does, the, uh, what does it mean to be thinking about um, ac- uh, well, education and education as an opportunity structure? in the face, on the one hand, of austerity and on the other hand, 
of the concentration of wealth in the hands of a few and the increased limits by the state on its capacity to redistribute, so pressure on households and levels of indebtedness. So I'd like to see, you know, perhaps more and even potentially comparative global work on, you know, what does it feel like to be a, a, an incredibly indebted uh, household in China, perhaps putting all of their resource into, um, in some cases, the movement of their child across the oceans to take up education elsewhere. So we might think about that in the domestic sense. So it, it, certainly in the UK now we've got... Uh, families who are paying per year nine, a bit more than 9,000 uh, per year if they're paying that, not taking out a loan, although eventually they'll have to pay that back. But can we, can we, can we look at the rise of global indebtedness and what does that feel like? What does that look like? How does that work? You know, what's the role of the rising financial sector in uh, funding some of that indebtedness? Some incredibly interesting phenomena that we need to be tracing. Uh, new kinds of financing. Um, we talk a lot about, you know, Uber, for example, and Uber as a phenomenon. This is, you know, the new way in which you would uh, sort taxis, and that's running on a platform. But actually, there are um, schools, um, teachers, um, parents who use uh, crowdsourcing to fund initiatives that you might have expected the state. To, to fund. Um, now there's efforts to regulate peer-to-peer you know, -peer or crowdsourcing and so on through the financial regulators but these are really interesting and important phenomena which are kind of global in a sense because that those funds can be uh, raised uh, globally um, and again I think these are interesting agendas that we could begin to look at. Perhaps the other one I would want to point to would be the whole the kind of movement of people and refugees. So while we do have mobility, and this is perhaps a voluntary mobility to some extent, uh, the ways in which mobility, security, the rise of xenophobia, uh, populism, um, and, and so on, all of these are in a, in a really heady mix that we need to begin to think about together. You know, how does one feed the other, feed the other, feed the other? And what is it that we might begin to, um, you know, raise, I think, in our research uh, uh, about the, the ways in which these, you know, uh, sets of contradictions uh, keep both emerging and falling in on each other that generate a new uh, round of uh, challenges. What do you think it will take for researchers to maybe look at some of these different topics that you've raised, some very interesting topics that kind of go all over the world in all different directions, um, and will take an army of researchers to really un understand? Um, but what would it take for researchers to begin to really theorize in, in ways that you see as currently lacking in the last few years? I think it, at one level is... Um a straight matter of access. So we see these bodies of refugees moving across the world um, and they, in, in a sense they're kept moving and it's very difficult. The, what we do get are some excellent accounts from uh, volunteer workers uh, and social workers who are working with them, giving excellent accounts of what happens in these places. Um, 
we're just looking at one on the the Australian camps in the Pacific, and they're just appearing. Mm. Uh, but it's very difficult indeed to get any access to them. Uh, and and similarly across probably all all the in different ways the ways that um, uh, these huge bodies of people are, are being dealt with because it is it is quite ex extraordinary numbers and extraordinary things happening and extraordinary results coming out. Um, how are they being? I mean, this is a perfect perfect opportunity, I would have thought, for comparative studies of these things. Can, can I come? So you asked the question about theorising, uh, Will, and uh, these developments. And I, I, I think one of, one of the things in all academic disciplines, education is no different. Uh, we tend to, you know, run along with our favourite theorists as if those theorists can be abstracted from time-space. Well, of course they can't. Um, so, you know, people who've been very significant, uh, perhaps, you know, when we've been doing research uh, in nation-state spaces in the national context, you know, um, Basil Bernstein might be one example, Pierre Bourdieu another example. Now, they were largely writing and reflecting on uh, developments um, probably beginning to kind of for them, the, the last works are, you know, on the on the edges of neoliberalism, for example. But if we took took Basil Bernstein, he he definitely was not actually thinking about global phenomena. Um, and some recent work that uh, some of us have been involved in is actually bringing some of this work, you know. So what would it be like to think with, not just to put that hat on Bernstein hat and just keep running with how Bernstein saw the world, you know? What what would it mean to take his theoretical resources and to put them into <laughs> conversation with the contemporary world? So I think. Um, when you begin to do that, um, I think it addresses the issues that Roger and I have raised on other occasions around methodological nationalism. Okay? Uh, so to some extent, Bourdieu is writing at a time when he, he, and he, his, his theory kind of reflects a level of stability um, in the world. He reflected the kind of much more kind of tightly bounded notion of the, the nation state and uh, a, a, a a state itself that uh, was a particular kind of state in the way it was organised. Uh, but it, writers like Wolfgang Strake and others, you know, it, much of that work that came out in 2014, uh, Wolfgang Strake, uh, Buying Time, Robert Reich, all, all of those, they're really, Thomas Piketty, uh, they're really pointing to some very profound transformations in the state, the relationship between the state and its citizens, this, that is the social contract. Um, what we see through this period too is the rise of uh, global multilateral institutions that are driving education agendas. Uh, and again, if we were to think with, let's say, Bourdieu, Bourdieu or uh, Bernstein and others who are trying to help us think about the social, so this is the society's part of our journal, what does, what, what kind of insights could we begin to uh, generate here that would actually help us think uh, with the, the sorts of tools? that Bernstein himself, he has a language to describe this. He talks about a language of description. So you have theories here, but actually if you take them out into the field and to look at the contemporary world, you should be actually 
what he describes kind of uh, redescription. Okay, you're redescribing um, both the theories here, um, and this was a very strong, um, you know, a push that he had in his work. He uh, asks us to avoid what he calls singulars, you know, so just your little favourite theorist, you know, it's Foucault or whatever. So bringing, um, bringing these you know, quite important vantage point standpoints into conversation with each other that enables us to say something more than the singular, that is the specific uh, theorists that, of course, can't have a theory of the world at all times for all time. But I, I think that one of the, one of the things, when, when you mentioned Piketty and so on, it, it reminds us that uh, even someone who is quite well disposed, well, no, not just someone. It is that the, the, the dominant, if you like, fundamental meta-theory behind all, all educational things at the moment is meritocracy. We have a, it, it is the, the, the signature. It is what, at, at a global level, is ac accepted in different forms, in different places, but it is accepted as uh, an effective and efficient way of stratifying and sorting populations. And that underlines practically everything, that all the assumptions about education systems that we come across. Uh, and as long as we have that, then we're, we're going to be looking for ways of accelerating promotional delaying. And so, but we are still talking about a ranking based on educational performance as the best indicator of ability and value. And hence why, why some students would go and take out all sorts of loans to access education. Absolutely, yeah. The, but I mean, it, it, I've been interested in this um, kind of silence on meritocracy because of course the opportunity structures, you know, um, we know this from the very nice work that uh, people like uh, Phil Brown and, and Hugh Lauder and that have done the global auction. So increasingly we see it play out in places like China. Uh, we, we know that there's uh, turbulence in China, in Hong Kong, for example, in the umbrella, umbrella movement. I mean, we'd love to see a special issue, for example, on these student movements. You know, how do, how do they link together? Because we do know that they were in communication with each other the student movement in Chile, in Hong Kong, uh, the Occupy. So everyone kind of rushed to perhaps look at Occupy, but we don't see some more joined up research that's uh, reflecting on these kinds of developments. Um, and to some extent, these student uh, movements, certainly I know in the case of Hong Kong, was some of it's tied around issues of meritocracy. They had bought into, you know, there would be, if you invested in education, a better job. For you, there would be um, a future, and that future for many families is looking actually quite bleak. Now, the so we we can reflect on what that feels like, but actually the research to be done is what's happening to meritocracy in across all of these different um, countries. How how does opportunity and uh, so on get parsed? You know, uh, so how do we legitimate these so-called investments in education? Some of the work I see coming through, you know, is looking at this idea of, um, you know, 
lacking of disposition and perhaps that some of the David Harvey work, you know, um, here, ideas around disposition and so on. But I think there's some intellectual work, some research work, some thinking work, some theory work to be done. And we'd love to see that in our journal around these really big issues uh, that are occurring across societies uh, with the sort of turbulence that gets created, which generates uh, major issues for how the state manages the nature of its social contract between itself and its citizens. Uh, now, some of that social contract is actually being managed through the global institutions and the sustainable development goals, and even indeed this idea of, let's say, a global competence. Um, and here I'd point out the OECD when it's developing its global competence indicator. Uh, it puts, it frames the importance of this issue in terms of uh, rising social conflict, uh, some people missing out in terms of uh, possibilities of opportunity and equality and so on. Um, but again, this, this would be, I think, uh, some important work that we would love to see coming through in the journal. So is there anything that you're looking forward to in 2018? Yeah, we've given you a really uh, somewhat pessimistic kind of reading of the world. And I don't think we should be uh, so pessimistic. I, I think um, if I just went to the trade issues, for example, the reason they're being conducted in secret is, of course, because actually um, social movements, monitors, they're looking at these uh, developments and so on. Um, the so perhaps Roger, what are you looking forward to in two thousand and eighteen? I, I would like to see um, the the shift from the Millennium Development Goals to Sustainable Development Goals really uh, become a focus. I think that there are I haven't seen any really interesting papers on the nature of this shift, but it's very clear that there's something quite different going on with the SDGs and that it has a number of different potentials, not just to try and fill in the holes left by the MDGs, but to do something. I mean, if we look at the list of them, it's incredibly ambitious. Uh, still, many people will say it's still not ambitious enough. But, uh, and, but I think we didn't, and I don't think it matters too much, that we didn't seem to publish a great deal on the MDGs, surprisingly enough, perhaps because there were other development journals that people sent those things to. But I think that the, the SDGs is a really very interesting um, initiative and it goes on for a long time. So the monitoring, I think, in the world, you know, just think of the Panama Papers um, and the most recent release, you know, um, th these things, I think, are actually exposing, um, you know, where money is being, you know, offshored and, and so on. So I think they're positive things because to some extent, you know, we can talk about the rise of the digital economy, but to some extent that so-called digital world does mean that information, knowledge and so on kind of flows across boundaries more easily. Now you can get locked down and certainly in the case of Turkey and what's actually even going on for academics in Turkey, I think, um, A, we need to be you know, talking about those in, as part of our research. But uh, the, but, but the, 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 it, it's harder and harder at one level also to get away with things because of the way in which uh, knowledge and information flows are at work. And, and I think they 
offer us some really interesting and important developments for democracy potentially uh, there. So, you know, making sure that uh, the kind of research that uh, is, is being done that might be coming through our journals is also able to reflect on those things. Um, I would like to say that some of the research that I see young scholars doing, having said what we said earlier, is just fabulous. And mm. in some cases, you know, uh, it's you know, work on Syria. Uh, there's been some um, absolutely fantastic work being done, um, again, thinking of uh, some of the doctoral students that we've even been supervising. It's outstandingly interesting work. So uh, as, as long as I think we... Uh, get together uh, your program will it's just such a, um, a breath of fresh air because they're new uh, media spaces voices um, that yeah. share part of a global uh, community where I, I think fundamentally why do we do research and on these issues because I think uh, we, we have to care about the world that's being um, that's emerging. We have to care about what the opportunities are for the future generation, uh, and and we're hoping that the kind of research that this journal is is wanting to ensure that we uh, get in and get out there makes a contribution to those kinds of debates and those kinds of um, uh, potential shapings of futures. And can can we turn this round on you and say what's the most important things you've been doing? Through, through Fresh Ed this year? Well, I mean, it's a very good question. I mean, my, I would say that I have been, I've had such a pleasure and really an honor of reading so many people's works that I wouldn't normally read, right? I mean, my, my field of study is a particular area and you, as a scholar, you get really into it. But this show has pushed me to kind of read very broadly and I'm now engaging with work that I might never have engaged with prior. And so it's just quite amazing to, to see how diverse the field, you know, and, and I don't even know what field I would even classify this as, but, you know, the, the field of comparative education maybe. Um, it's just so diverse and so um, it's so interesting, right? And there, there are so many amazing scholars that, that really bring to life some issues that I never really thought about, to be perfectly honest. Um, but, you know, in terms of what I'm looking forward to, I mean, I think a lot of it is similar to what you're saying. Um, you know, uh, Piketty is putting out the, the World Inequality Report in 2018 with a team of researchers. And this is going to be pretty incredible to see this data finally available. Uh, I know he's, they've made their data available for some time, but this is going to be this global report looking at all sorts of indicators of, of inequality. It's done meritocracy. <laughs> exactly. I mean, well, that's right. I mean, it might be an interesting critique to make uh, about the, the meritocracy. Um, that that's assumed or applied in, in the analysis, or at least in their data. Um, I'm also very fascinated by some of the work on democracy and being critical in this you know this time of uh, retreating to national borders. Um, and so someone like um, Henri Giraud, who's quite well known, but you know his he's he's been putting out some new work that I, I think has been really incredible. So I'm, I'm looking forward to more of that as well, I guess. So, you know, for me, I think Fresh Ed is hopefully kind of a complement to journals like yours that, that allow, you know, maybe more of a uh, wider audience to really engage with some of these ideas. 
And I think from, I mean, you've talked about, I mean, I think it gets a global perspective. I think that's what you are able to do, you know, look at what's going on in the globe but, uh, and, and Fresh Ed, I think, uh, in a really uh, nice way is able to, you know, identify just issues that come up. Uh, I know, for instance, uh, I spoke to you pretty soon, within days after the uh, Brexit uh, issues, and, uh, and and so there's a timeliness, I think, and therefore an importance um, of something like this media fresh ed that then I think is able to, you know, also, you know, shape perhaps conversations and agendas that then might get worked out in ways in which we can't just uh, do do in a, you know, um, a 40 or 50 minute kind of conversation, as it were, because there's... Mm. Uh, but the, the thing I think that you pointed to and I think we'd like to see that in our journal <clears throat> education is a complicated business and it requires you to read very broadly around you know economics international relations you know if you're thinking uh, the hat of an anthropologist as they go in and try to understand the you know detail of everyday life and how what things mean and so on so it does require you know very broad wide reading and uh, and, and and to to join up the dots, and in doing that, I think you start to see new new things. And I think that would be the plea, really, to to think in a kind of um, a kind of trans or multidisciplinary way to think with and for you know education and in that broadest of senses, uh, so that we can actually see. Um, not a society, but societies, because that's kind of more relational uh, thinking as well. What happens in the US is often shaped by what's going on in China and vice versa. You know, region building, for example. Regions don't just get built from within. They are in relation to other developments, other regions that get developed in other parts of the world. So this uh, joined up uh, or, or kind of transdisciplinary approach, I think actually for education is is quite fundamental to helping us understand it as a complicated um, business. Um, and I don't mean that in the, the sense of the work, the work of the business sector, but actually a, a complicated endeavour, um, which makes it all the more um, important and worthy of study. Well, on that note, I'm going to say thank you so much again for joining the end of the year show. Um, Look forward to having you on next year. And, and I think we've discussed many different issues that hopefully get picked up for next year. And some of the researchers come on Fresh Ed and some of the researchers publish in your journal. So Susan Robertson and Roger Dale, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed and have a wonderful new year. And thank, thank you for providing this fantastic facility. It's absolutely tremendous input. And it, it does as much as anything to bring this community together. Terrific. And thank you from me, Will, and we'll see you in 2018. Susan Robertson is a professor of sociology of education at the University of Cambridge, and Roger Dale is a professor of education at the University of Bristol. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zung. 
Maggie Hu is Freshhead's social media coordinator, and original music for Freshhead was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next year.